Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. I'm excited for what we're jumping into this morning. we, Diana, I thought it was funny a second ago that Diana said our Wednesday night services are a little bit more in-depth. I don't know that it gets much more in-depth than what we did last week and what we're going to do again today is we're going to finish up our As in the Days of Noah service. So uh, to do that, Bennett, can I see, while the sheets are being handed out, can I see that little clip, that 30-second clip that I've got for everybody? Let's see that. The world is changed. You're going to have to turn that up. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. The world has changed. I feel it in the water, I feel it in the earth, I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, and this is the, this is the whole line, comes from one of my favorite movies of all time, so I had to hijack it for our sermon series. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, if you're not familiar. <laughs> Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. That statement, as we study today, is going to take on a new meaning and new relevance to our sermon series. I think that there is a story, a history of this world, rather, that isn't often discussed in church. It's in our Bible. Our Bible is full of it. But it's not discussed in church for some reason. And I think that this is something that you need to know. Our conversation this morning and last week is spurred on by the words of Jesus himself that come to us from Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 40. So let's just read it, rip the band-aid right off, let's get going. As in the days of Noah... So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Who's ready for the Son of Man to come? Maranatha? Amen. As in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So what were the days of Noah? Can I just see a show of hands in here? Who was here last week? I want to make sure that you get full course credit for last week. Okay, great. We're going to bring it home today, okay? What were the days of Noah? To answer that question, we really have to try and understand the mindset of the people of the day at the time of Christ. We covered some of this in our Angels and Demons series, but let me start here today where I started last week. There were three major events, perspective-forming events that defined the mindset of the time. Those three events were these, the fall in the Garden of Eden, of course, right? The flood at the time of Jesus, they all knew of the great deluge. 
And thirdly, the Tower of Babel. These three events remade the world, each in their own unique, specific way. Today, I want to spend our time primarily talking about the post-flood world, which, by the way, was still considered to be the days of Noah. For Noah lived, to be, lived another 350 years after the flood. We don't often consider that when we just read the brief passages that we have in Genesis 6 through 10 and whatnot, and we, we read the timelines of how long these people lived, but if we actually put the math together, and we'll look at that in a minute, he lived another 350 years after the flood. Well, Genesis chapter 8, verse 2 through 4, that's where we're going to start today. Our time is spent looking at after the flood. Genesis 8, 2 through 4 reads, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. Verse 3, And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. A new beginning, a new start for humanity, for the whole world. The seventh month, which means completion. Can we see this next graphic? The seventh month, month, which means completion, the number seven to the Hebrew people, the number 17 to the Hebrew people means resurrection. The world resurrected, complete. That also happens to be the day, if you do a little bit of math, that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. On the 17th day of the seventh month, on the Feast of First Fruits in 32 AD. So Jesus' resurrection from the grave was the same day that the world was resurrected from the waters. A new beginning happened on the same day, type and shadow, never coincidences when you study your word of God. When Noah stepped off the ark, and I'm going to try to move through this first part pretty quickly because we've got a lot of content to get to today. When Noah stepped off the ark, he quickly noticed that the world had changed. To what degrees, we can't be sure. What we do know is that a vast amount of water that had previously been trapped or frozen in the atmosphere was no longer frozen and no longer present. Josephus called this a crystalline uh, shell around the world that God melted when it rained. Remember, it's never rained before. It had never rained. The Bible tells us that a mist would come up from the ground to water the plants and the trees. The mist, when the, when the earth broke and the waters of the deep of the depths came and flooded the world, those waters that used to just mist up and water the earth. Now they've broken loose. They've come forth on the earth and, and the atmosphere. Geothermally, God probably just blew on it. Or he sent an asteroid by to melt it. Whatever you want to say, right? So that was no longer present. Many scientists believe that that is why, though Noah and his family would not have realized it initially, that lifespans would begin to shrink over the next several post-flood generations. You know, when you're a new believer and you're living in the time that we live in, and if you're lucky, you can be, you know, 85. 78 is the average age of death right now, right? So if you're lucky, you get to, you beat 78, right? Uh, it's hard for us to read our Bible, especially in early Genesis, and see ages like 900 and think, is this not a fantasy story? 
I mean, really, I mean, it can be a stumbling block for some young believers, okay? But let me show you the lifespans that, that the Bible actually gives us. Can we see this picture? We see from Adam to Seth, Adam was 930. Look at these lifespans, 930, 1,042, 1,140, 14, 12. You look at all of these lifespans, right? Those are long lifespans, aren't they, that the Bible records? Then we see the flood in 1656 AM, which is from creation, and those lifespans start getting shorter pretty rapidly, don't they? They do. From 10 generations, the first 10 generations in the Bible, they lived across 1,600 years. The next 12 generations immediately after the flood, they would all uh, see, see life and death within 650 years. So the lifespans after the flood go, start going down dramatically. Many creation scientists believe, well, that's because the oxygen content in the air went drastically down when the atmosphere changed. Can I see this next graphic? Uh, to make the point further, Shem, dead at 600. Dead at 600. Uh, uh, you just look, go from top to bottom all, all the way down to Joseph, dead at 110, to Moses, dead at 120. For time's sake, I'm not going to go through all those. Joshua, the quote on your screen reads, To Eber were born two children. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the sons of men were divided, and in the latter days the earth was divided. Some believe this speaks to the continents breaking up. There's different people that fall on different opinions of that within the creation science world. And the name of the second was Yoktan, meaning that in his day the lives of the sons of men were diminished and lessened. Again, we can't be sure on this one, but Noah establishes... Uh, a, well, we know that's, that's different. They wouldn't know this right away. But another way that the world was changed... We can't, again, we can't be sure on this one, but Noah establishes some holidays. And the first four holidays that he establishes upon getting off of the ark, according to Jubilees chapter 6, were four holidays to celebrate the new moons just before every solstice or equinox. So four holidays celebrating the changing of seasons. So again, we can't be sure on this one, but... Some conjecture that there may not have been seasons prior to the flood. So, according to Jubil the book of Jubilees, the apocryphal text, I guess it was just 65 and sunny year-round, huh? Thanks a lot, pre-flood world, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of people uh, are mad at Adam and Eve, but at least it never rained, right? And you lived to be 900. You totally blew that three-flood world. Way to go. But I mentioned these feasts of Noah. Let me take a look at this next graphic real quick. The fall, they would celebrate the creation, of, creation and Noah's birthday in the winter. They would celebrate the abysses were closed when the waters were closed up and it began to go down. They'd, in the spring, the new moon before the spring equinox, they would, they would remember and commemorate when uh, God commanded Noah to build the ark, and in summertime, they would celebrate when the tops of the mountains were seen. There's the next holiday. The very next holiday that Noah instituted will be pretty interesting for us. Noah commanded his children to observe the anniversary of the flood as well. 
He did this on the 17th day of the second month, or two days after the lunar reckoning of the autumn equinox. Can anybody guess what this holiday might be? And do you still celebrate the remembering of the great flood, the miracle of it? You do. Does anybody know what it's called? Paganism calls this day Samhain. But today we know it as Halloween. As paganism developed, Satan would twist history. As, men, as mankind in the post-flood world grew to be more wicked, they began to celebrate the pre-flood wicked dead. Rather than remembering the flood, they began to celebrate and honor the wicked that were killed in the flood. And that'll be relevant here in a minute. Have you ever heard of the Day of the Dead? Huge holiday in Mexico, right? The Day of the Dead? All cultures, get this, all cultures are familiar with the concept and they have their own version, yet I doubt many know the dark origin of it. That's why so many dress up as ghouls and ghosts on Halloween. It was believed that the dis disembodied demonic spirits of the Nephilim the offspring of the fallen angels, they were roaming the earth on this day. And if you dressed like them, the ghoul or ghost, they may leave you alone. Trick or treat, anybody? Okay. The people, would leave, they would either dress like the ghouls or the ghosts, and they would leave things out on their front porch. They would leave gifts out there. They would leave gifts. They would leave food out in front of their house. They would leave beer out in front of their house for the demons, for real. So hopefully, they'll be appeased and just leave me alone. The Druids came up with the idea of jack-o'-lanterns. They would do human sacrifice and, and, well, burn human flesh. There's no other way to say it. In the pumpkin or the gourd or whatever to ward off the evil spirits. You didn't know you were celebrating Flood Day, did you? But let's keep moving quickly. Noah would also later establish what are known as Noah Hyde Laws, and this is where your worksheet begins. I'm giving it to you because I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today because I just can't, okay? Uh, seven laws, he said, as he dispersed his, his sons into, into uh, sending them forth to build different nations, he said, in every nation, you've got to at least do this. Don't worship idols. Don't commit blasphemy. Don't murder. Don't commit sexual sin. Don't steal. Don't eat the blood or flesh cut from a living animal. And establish courts of justice. Acts 15 is evidence that in the, in the, um, the mind of the people during the time of Jesus, they were still very Enochian in their worldview, in their thinking. Because when, if you remember in Acts 15, when the council in Jerusalem is trying to figure out, well, do we put Gentiles under the law of Moses? That doesn't seem right. Some of the Judaizers were trying to do that. Well, they said, no, essentially, go ahead and read it. Look what their advice is. They basically say, just let them honor the Noahide laws that all nations are supposed to honor. It's interesting. So consider that and make yourself a note to read Acts 15. Backing up, though, the world has changed. The world is different. But it was purged of all wickedness. Things should be good then, right? Mission accomplished. Wickedness purged. How long do you think that would last? 
Well, as you recall, Noah had three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. With a name like Ham, how can this be the bad guy, right? (laughs) From these three sons, the path of one of these sons would lead to the Messiah. The path of another of these sons would lead to the Antichrist. The second of those paths begins with a strange story that we find in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 through 29. So if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to read a good bit of passage here. So feel free to turn it open to Genesis chapter 9. We'll have it on the screen as well, of course. It's a strange story, and I think everyone who's, you know, you're excited to start reading the Bible, you know, I'm going to read the Bible this year, so many people have said, right? You get out, you read, a lot of times you get right up to Leviticus, and then the the trail goes cold, right? But if you're doing that, you may have come to Genesis chapter 9 and found this story and just thought, I don't even know what to do with that. So you just don't do anything with it, you just read on, right? Well, let's read it together. Verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21, Then he drank of wine and was drunk. I always like to mention this passage, and I say, well, I didn't learn that in Sunday school, right? (laughs) He was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And told his two brothers outside, verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards. Interesting visual. Got a blanket across both of their shoulders, walking backwards so they can just kind of throw it on him, right? They laid it on both their shoulders, went backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness, verse 24. So Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, he shall be to his brethren. Verse 26. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Verse 27. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Verse 28. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Verse 29. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, there is a lot of conjecture on this one, okay? Uh, As to what Ham did to deserve a curse. I mean, there must be more, right? Seriously. I mean, he's not the only kid to ever walk into the bathroom, you know, without knocking first, right? There's got to be more. That can't be all there is to this. Well, progressives, progressives in the church today, they try to make this about homosexuality. If you've ever done a study on this, you'll find it. They try to make this about homosexuality. I'm sorry, but as they say in the South, that dog won't hunt, okay? If anything... If it's anything like that, culturally at the time, the nakedness of Noah would have referred, been referring to his wife's chastity. So if you're going to go that route, 
You can conjecture that way, if anything. However, that's not what I'm here to talk about today or why it's relevant to us. Ancient rabbis, Jewish tradition, and the ancient book of Joshua recommended reading uh, to us according to 2 Samuel, 2 Timothy, and Jeremiah. The ancient book of Joshua offers us a different understanding of this story. A different story, at least. And I think it'll be pretty self-explanatory as to why this is relevant to our as-in-the-days-of-Noah study as a whole. Let's read. This is on your sheet. Joshua chapter 7, verse 23 through 30. It's on the screen as well. And Cush, the son of Ham, the son of Noah, took a wife in those days in his old age, and she bore a son. And they called his name Nimrod saying, at the time the sons of men began to rebel and transgress against God. And the child grew up, and his father loved him exceedingly, for he was the son of his old age. Verse 24. And the garments of skin which God made for Adam and his wife when they went out of the garden were given to Cush. Verse 25. For after the death of Adam and his wife, the garments were given to Enoch, the son of Jared. And when Enoch was taken up, raptured, he gave them to Methuselah, his son. And at the death of Methuselah, verse 26, Noah took them and brought them to the ark. Did you ever know that those skins were riding on the ark? Interesting. Interesting story. And they were with him until he went out of the ark. Next slide, verse 27. And in their going out, Ham stole those garments from Noah, his father. And he took them and hid them from his brothers. Verse 28. And when Ham begat his firstborn Cush, he gave him the garments in secret, and they were with Cush many days. And Cush also concealed them from his sons and brothers. And when Cush had begotten Nimrod, he gave those garments through his love for him. And Nimrod grew up, and when he was 20 years old, he put on those garments. Verse 30. And Nimrod became strong when he put on the garments, and God gave him might and strength through the garments. And he was a mighty hunter in the earth. That sounds like such a strange story. How could that possibly be true? I don't know. How could uh, Samson have such great strength just because he didn't get a haircut? Right? Hmm. He was a mighty hunter in the field, and he hunted the animals, and he built altars, and he offered upon them the animals before the Lord. The world at the time of Christ believed that Noah was naked because Ham had stolen his clothes while he was passed out drunk. These clothes, the same clothes that God had stitched himself for Adam and Eve, the first sacrifice symbolized that there would be a price for the covering of sins, and that price is not your good works or your good behavior. You know what it is, right? Jesus paid that price for you. So, for now, though, let's focus on the fact that Ham stole these garments, right? That's the story. What else do we need to know about Ham, okay? I was so sure that he was going to be the good guy. It's not sounding like it. Well, ancient church fathers 
Ancient church fathers, let me give you a little more evidence that at the time of Jesus and the ancient church fathers, the disciples of the apostles, they believed this. In recognitions of Clement, chapter 4, verse 26 through 29, he writes this, Fallen angels taught men the use of magical incantations that would force demons to obey men. After the flood, Ham, the son of Noah, unhappily discovered this and taught it to his sons. This became ingrained in the Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians. Ham died shortly after the fall of the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, called Ninus by the Greeks, was handed this knowledge. And by it caused men to go away from the worship of God and go into diverse and erratic superstitions, and they began to be governed by the signs of the stars and the motions of So what more do we need to know about Ham? Thief, he taught magic. So back to our earlier question. The world has changed, but at least wickedness is gone. How long would it last? Not long. Not long. Last week I pointed out to you something peculiar about Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. I'll just read it to you. Verse 4 is where uh, we hear there are giants on the earth in those days. And if you remember last week, the next line is peculiar because it says, and also afterwards. For there were giants in the world at that time, comma, and also afterwards. Why afterward? I thought the flood took care of that, right? Right? I've always wondered that ever since I was a kid reading my Bible. All right, flood, got rid of the giants. Wait a minute, where did Goliath come from? I mean, haven't you ever thought that? The ancient book of Jubilee is another apocryphal text. It's not canon, it's not the word of God, but it's a history book of the time that the the people at the, alive at the time of Christ would have put in great stock and value in. That's why oftentimes they recommend in the scripture that you read them. Jubilees 8, verses 1 through 5 records, and this is on your sheet. I think it's on the screen too. And Canaan grew, and his father taught him writing, Canaan the son of Ham. And he went to seek for himself a place where he might seize for himself a city. And he found a writing which former generations had carved on a rock. And he read what was thereon, and he transcribed it and sinned owning to it. For it contained, it contained the teaching of the watchers in accordance with which they used to observe the omens of the sun and the moon and the stars in all of the heavens. You remember who the watchers were, right, from our past week's study? The angels that God had put on earth to watch over mankind, but they transgressed their assignment and came into the daughters of man, birthing a Nephilim race of giants. And he wrote it down. And said nothing regarding it, for he was afraid to speak to it, speak to Noah about it, lest he should be angry with him on account of it. You think Noah would be angry? God just flooded the world to get rid of this crap, and you find it written on some stones, and you write it down, and you're bringing it back, right? The ancient church fathers wrote that Ham was the first post flood magician. 
He must have re-revived these pre-flood practices and handed them down to his sons. Our quote from Jubilees makes it seem like finding and translating the pagan relics was the basic cause for the revival of the old religion, a religion that involved DNA manipulation. DNA manipulation likely brought about the post-flood scourge of giants in Canaan, Goliath, and his four brothers, Og of Bashan. This old religion, a religion that involved DNA manipulation, a religion in Egypt that's hard to explain in Exodus chapter 12. Moses throws down his staff, God turns it into a snake. Janus and Jambres, the two magicians, they're able to do the same thing. How? Babylonian religion. Pre-flood, demonic, fallen religion of the fallen angels. This is a religion that we'll see Nimrod wield. And interestingly enough, church, if you don't think any of this is relevant to you, it is the same religion that the Antichrist is prophesied to wield in the tribulation. He does signs and wonders, miracles. How? In any case, Lucifer's lying. Lucifer's lying once again caused the very, very, very next generation. They didn't even get one generation out of the gates. The very next generation to question Noah's story, even though he was a first-hand witness. Ham, Japheth, Shem, their kids began to doubt that the flood even happened. Church, I don't think that we realize how what we watch and what we read, how it can really influence us, or our children for that matter. You do realize that the whole scientific world today, right? Uh, I should say political science world today, now says that the flood never happened. For real. No, it was a giant um, ice, right? They come up with all kinds of theories. But definitely not a global flood, even though every single culture across the world, every ancient text you find, records a history of a great deluge. Scientists today are so smart. So Nimrod. So Nimrod. Ooh, we're doing, I think we're going to finish today. This is great. <laughs> you guys should see my desk. It's like exploded with all these books everywhere. <laughs> Stephanie thought I should post it. But. Nimrod. This brings us back, okay? This is, and this is where we bring it all home, okay? Giving you a lot, a lot already. What's it got to do with you? Really. This is where we bring it home. Can we see those, those three major events again, Bennett? Three major events. The fall in the Garden of Eden. These are the three major events that shaped the mind and the perspective of the people living at the time of Jesus and obviously before that. The fall in the Garden of Eden, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8 through 9 reads, Cush begot Nimrod. Can we see that? 8 through 9, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. What does that mean? Hmm. 
That maybe it just means that, right? We'll see. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. This has got to be the worst translated verse in the entire Bible, by the way, for real. I mean, if you read that, you just think this is a great guy. He's mighty, he's strong, obviously he must be a great leader. And why would you think he's a bad guy reading that, right? Well, we'll get to that. Can I see this next uh, graphic? Let me give you a summary of Nimrod. And then there will be some stuff on your sheet because I know a lot of these quotes I put up here, they're just too small for anyone to even really read if you're sitting in back. So I put it on your sheet as well. Nimrod, the Tower of Battle, Nimrod. What's the summary of Nimrod? Let's see. Inheritor of stolen magic clothes. A magician as his father. On your sheet, you'll see this quote uh, from Preik de Rabbi. This is the recording of a midrash, an ancient Jewish document written and included in the Talmud at the time of the Talmud, uh, probably generally in the 90 AD arena. It's at play. The midrash 833 relates the Jewish traditions that Nimrod inherited the garments of Adam and Eve, and these made him invincible. That's the mind of the Jews at the time of Jesus. Inheritor of stolen magic clothes. Almost as if Samson with his hair long, right? Well, more about Nimrod. He was the first world dictator. Yitzhak Danzinger writes this. And this quote comes to us from a, a document in 1830. It was recorded in 1832, Joseph wrote, Josephus, excuse me, Josephus wrote that, and he's citing Josephus. Document in 1832 is citing Josephus, if I didn't make that clear. Josephus wrote, he gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. Does that sound familiar? He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. I tell you what, if God tries to drown the world again, I'm going to... Are you serious? It's almost as if those clothes have maybe gone to his head. Maybe he feels invincible or something. But if God has a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach. And he would avenge himself on God for what? Destroying their forefathers. Mad that God killed the wicked. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem a piece oh, and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. So the world looked at those that submit to God and saw them as weak. Sound familiar? And they built a tower. I've got three different slides, and then we'll come back to this one. Can I see these next three slides, Bennett? We'll come back to this one. Let's see this next uh, slide on Nimrod. Historical references of Nimrod from Josephus and from uh, Targum of Jonathan. Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that his own excellency, Nimrod's excellency, was the source of it. And he soon changed things into what? Tyranny. 
thinking that there was no other way to wean men from the fear of God than by making them rely upon his own power. Targum of Jonathan, from the foundation of the world, none has ever been, none was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and in rebellions against the Lord. Next picture. He was powerful in hunting, uh, in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men, and he said, To them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. There there it is said, as Nimrod is the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. And lastly, the Chaldee uh, paraphrase of 1 Chronicles 1.10, Chaldean, Cush beget Nimrod, who began to prevail in wickedness. That's a little bit different of an interpretation of that scripture, isn't there? For he shed innocent blood, and he rebelled against Yehovah. And there should be one more with the definition of his name, Bennett. Do we have that one? I thought it was before these two, but maybe it's after. There we go. His name means to rebel. The future tense of it, of course, would be, we will rebel. The final global dictator will be an Assyrian, according to Micah chapter 5 and Isaiah 10. Mighty man before the Lord, I told you earlier, worst translation may be in the Bible because the proper translation of it should be in defiance of the Lord. He put himself before the Lord, put himself into the place of the Lord. And what else did he do? Can we see the next, go back, go to the next picture, revisiting our summary? He established the first one world religion. The first one world religion and made it a part of his government, made it a part of the state. One world government tyranny. One world religion. He established ancestor worship, deification of himself and his family. Semiramis, his wife, would become a god. You know her as Astarte and other cultures later on. Tammuz, his son. Still a root of where we get the name for the day of the week, Tuesday. Okay? It all goes back to Babylon <laughs> church. And this is all uh, reference, comes to us, and uh, even uh, Arabic works record this. The Book of Rolls, Clementine literature records this. He established fire worship and idolatry. Back to our list, the first earthly king, by the way, to give himself a crown. Kings with crowns, we see, right? He was the first one arrogant enough to do it. And then he built the tower in defiance. The Tower of Babel that you've already heard about was so large that the base of the tower was the size of 20 football fields. 20 football fields. Alexander Hislop, on your sheet, you'll see this. Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, gives the background of how Nimrod was responsible for the Tower of Babel. It was he who attempted to bring together the human race after the flood in an effort to get them united into a nation of which he could become the great world ruler. 
He was the rebel, the founder of Babel, and the hunter of, so, of the souls of men. He was the lawless one. And he is a shadow or a type of the last world ruler, the Antichrist who is yet to appear. The first great civilization therefore came out from the sons of Ham. And this one's a little bit more interesting. The last point looks a little strange, doesn't it? So he reintroduces this pre-flood world history, but he opened portals? What were they really doing at the Tower of Babel? Well, according to the mind of the Jewish nation at the time of Jesus, they were up to some interesting things. Sumerian texts say that Enki, the feminine form of the god of chaos or the dragon, was summoned by Nimrod through the abzu or portal to the underworld. Interesting. On your sheet, I think I've got this one. David Scott writes in 1832, he writes, In the Hungarian legend of the enchanted stag or white stag or silver stag, Kim, King Nimrod a.k.a. in the text the men wrote, is often described as Nimrod the giant or the giant Nimrod. He began to become a great man in the tower. What were they doing? DNA manipulation? These ancient texts say they're, they're bringing back this old religion. DNA manipulation? Trying to open dimensional portals? That is just too... Chad, come on, this is insane. Have you ever been to a church like this before? Seriously. <laughs> Dimensional portals in the power of Babel. You're, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, come on, nobody would ever try to open dimensional portals or anything like that. Can I see this next picture? Does anybody know what this is? That's the Large Hadron Super Collider in Geneva, Switzerland. You'll notice circling their logo are three sixes. Can I see the next picture? It's 17 miles around. They send two particles traveling at the opposite directions at the speed of light to collide the particles to learn about how the Big Bang happened, they say. Although they're up to a little bit more than that. Can I see the next picture? That's what it looks like. Look how huge it is. See the little people down at the bottom? Interesting. Can we see the next picture? Interestingly enough, there's, there's a statue of the goddess of Shiva that they put out front and dedicated when they opened the facility. There you see the main facility right there that is strangely built on the ancient ruins of the temple dedicated to the god Apollo. Odd place to build that, I'd say. Interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 9, we find something called the, the abyss. And in there, a beast demon of the abyss that during the tribulation period is opened 
somehow. And out of that pit comes one who is named Abaddon, or in the Greek, Apollo. So Apollo comes from a dimensional gate to the abyss, and yet here is this thing built on the temple of Apollo. We have the next picture. This is actually some artwork that somebody did to be nice and to honor them. I'm not even making this up, guys. If you just go to their website, look it up. They openly claim on their own website that they're trying to open a dimensional portal. They're trying to pierce into the fifth dimension. They actually say on their website that they hope to send something through or bring something out as they're looking for the God particle, trying to open a dimensional portal. Hmm. Well, I guess if we do it now, I just, do I sound so crazy anymore? The, the ancient text, it's not even me. Do the ancient texts sound so crazy anymore that perhaps Nimrod was trying to open a dimensional gate to bring Enki? I'll just leave that there. Regarding Nimrod, the Antichrist, type and shadow, ancient pre-flood religions, magic, Antichrist is, going, Antichrist is going to be doing miracles. He's obviously practicing Nimrodian religion, one world order, one world religion, tyranny, opening dimensional portals, Seven-year tribulation, <clears throat> you don't want to be here for that, all right? The good news is, and we'll close here, the good news is this, church. According to the book of Joshua, Nimrod is eventually killed by Esau when Esau steals his clothes. <laughs> now I'll just take that, and, yeah, and that also adds some interesting color. Side note here, rabbit trail. When Esau killed Nimrod, he rushed home and was so worried that everybody was going to come get him, he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew and headed out. Interesting color. I don't know. You know, do with it what you want with it. Certainly adds some perspective to things. As in the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like everything we just went through, are, is, are we there yet? Is there enough of this stuff that just a few years ago you would have thought sounded nuts, right? Or maybe just a few studies ago you would have thought sounded nuts. Is there enough of it in place for us to, consider, to, to be considered as in the days of Noah? Well, I'll give you one more here, and this is on your sheet. On March 20th, 1990, President George Bush signed into law a historic joint resolution of both houses of Congress recognizing the seven Noahide laws as the bedrock of society from the dawn of civilization and urged our country to return the world to the moral and ethical values contained in the seven Noahide laws. What an odd thing to do. <laughs> Totally random. There is a divine plan at work here at church. Okay? And that much cannot be argued.
okay? We covered a lot of extra biblical uh, uh, content today that you can believe it or not believe it, but there's too much of an overview of things that are in place right now. There's just too much happening. There's a divine work that is type and shadow, and I'll leave you this, with this this morning. We'll invite Leith forward. I know I've shown you guys this before, but some of you may not have seen it before. Can we see this last graphic? I mentioned the first 10 generations. The first 10 generations uh, from Adam lived over a period of 1,600 years, right? Well, there's a little bit more to them, as in the days of Noah. This is a chart of what their names actually mean. The name Adam simply means man. The name Seth means appointed. You get the idea, right? Enosh, mortal, Kenan means sorrow. This is the line of the Messiah. Mahalel, the blessed God. Jared, or Yared, shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. And during the time of the flood, it was known that the prophecy of the flood had happened. Noah had talked about it. He had preached about it, trying to get people to repent, right? It took five years to build the ark. But people knew that Methuselah was named, his death shall bring the deluge. So imagine being that guy in your whole life. Everybody's just waiting for you to die or hoping that you won't, right? Interesting point is that Methuselah lived to be the oldest guy in the Bible. That's a picture of God's patience, that he would have it that none be lost. Type and shadow. Lamech, the despairing, and Noah, rest and comfort. If you put it all together, it reads as such. Man who is appointed mortal and sorrow. He was appointed to be mortal and to be full of sorrow and despair. But the blessed God came down, shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. And so that was in the person of Jesus Christ that he came down to us and brought the despairing peace and rest. And so we see the type and shadow in that Noah, when when the world was on the verge, what did God do? He delivered him. And so it is, as in the days of Noah, The world is as a global dictatorship heading into tribulation as with Nimrod. It is now and or if it's not, we're not that far away. But as in the days of Noah, don't fear. Do not fear. Because as in the days of Noah, I believe he's coming for us, church. I believe there's a rescue plan. Amen? Amen. We'll close there. Great job, guys. With every eye closed and every head bowed. If you're here today and the Lord is moving on your heart, He's opening your eyes to some things. Perhaps you didn't realize what era of history you could potentially be living in. I don't know. Whatever it is, I just want you to lay it down at his feet. 
I want you to lay your burden down and I want you to walk in that hope and rest that he has for you, that he's called you to, that he's done all of this for. He's done it all. All of these moving parts, all of these different stories from crossing, crossing the ages, thousands of years of history. He's written these stories. They've been acted out all to bring you salvation, to bring you rest. Don't let Satan rob it from you. Your source is not the state, is not your government. Your source is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. If you're here this morning and you need to lay a burden down, just raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Just let it drop. Because wouldn't you say, in the context of all of this, we worry about so much that we shouldn't. Just drop it at his feet. If you're here this morning or watching online and you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ, you've never put your faith and trust that he was the Messiah who was prophesied and promised to come, that he did what was necessary and he rose from the grave, he paid your debt in full. If you're not living your life in that confidence that your debt is paid, you can. If that's you right now, if you're watching online, I want you to message us. But if you're in this room and you need to put your eternity in his hands, in his security, raise your hand right now. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray out loud as a body, church. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. That you rose from the grave on the third day. And that because you live, I live. I trust my eternity with you. That you'll remember me. That you'll walk with me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen, church. We love you guys. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour favor out on your lives. May you go in grace and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Romans chapter one next week if you want to do some reading. <laughs>